Today we'll be discussing the late great comedian Gilbert Gottfried, and we'll be discussing myotonic dystrophy. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be going over the career of Gilbert Gottfried, who passed away recently. And we'll also be discussing the disease myotonic dystrophy, which Gilbert suffered from. So Ali, I did want to start off talking about Gilbert Gottfried, who passed away recently. And I think a lot of what I learned about him recently, I watched after he passed away this documentary, Gilbert. And honestly, I didn't know a lot about him before. In fact, I wasn't even sure if we would do a full episode on it. And then I watched the documentary. I'm like, oh, no, we definitely have to do an episode on it. You've seen this documentary? I have. And I'll tell you, I think I'm in the same boat as you. I don't think I was much of a fan in this documentary, which I recommend to anybody who's had any connection to Gilbert, I, I felt it was so well done in giving you an appreciation of someone's life, a person who was very private. You know, I don't think most people would know that he was married and had children and all that. But there's a clip of Gilbert on Arsenio Hall, on Arsenio Hall show. For the young folks, Arsenio was a very famous talk show host at one point. I watched that. I remember that episode. Arsenio was literally holding Gilbert's face and he was like, you will answer my questions. I have two more questions. And Gilbert's like, let me ask you a question. And he's like, no, no. And then I don't remember something happens and he throws water yeah, yeah. in Gilbert's face. And I was like, oh my God, I remember this. And I remember thinking at the time, you can probably only do that with Gilbert Godfrey. You can't throw water in Tom Selleck's mm -hmm, face, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to, like, but also that's how annoying Gilbert is as a comedian. He's breaking Arsenio. Arsenio has lost all composure and he's throwing water at him. Like he's, it's like a last resort. I remember that even then. And they show that in the clip. And I think that also defines my feelings towards Gilbert, right? You never knew who that guy was. He was so, he would come on every talk show and you wouldn't learn one exactly. single thing about and him. And so that's what I found so interesting. He kept everything so private about his personal life. And that's, I guess, by design. But a couple of things they mentioned about his life in the documentary, you know, he grew up in New York City, child of Jewish parents. He had two sisters. His dad was an electrician, kind of working class guy. His mother was quite quiet, didn't really talk a lot. And his dad was pretty hard on him. Definitely that came out a lot in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You agree with that? Well, it, totally. And I hate to say this, but I kind of saw the perspective of the father. Not that I would share that perspective, but you know, my father as well, being an academic, a teacher, as a teacher in Quebec, where I grew up, he would basically be an employee of the province, you know, that's who pays the teachers. And so he had, you know, like tenure and seniority and uh, a savings plan, and he was part of a union and there was job security. And I, his offspring, chose both the restaurant industry and the comedy industry to go into. And he was just baffled. How can you pick 
two industries that both offer you zero security of any kind. <laughs> like, couldn't one of them at least been, you know, the solid like fallback plan? So I, I saw a similar thing. I feel very lucky that when my dad passed away, he saw some glimpse of like, okay, this guy's going to be okay. There was some, you know, there was an upward trending in my, in my career, uh, I guess, 12 years ago, 10, 11 years ago when my dad passed away. But Gilbert, you can see... You can see Gilbert's grandmother in this documentary talking about, I wish he had lived to see Gilbert's success. He would have felt very bad about the way he tortured him emotionally yeah, yeah. is what I'm assuming she means there. Yeah, it's interesting. And you don't really get a sense, unfortunately, in the documentary, because again, he's a pretty closed off person. This is certainly the most open he's ever been, I think, ever on camera. But mm -hmm. you still don't get a sense of why he went into comedy. He just kind of left school at, I think, 17, high school, and then just started going to open mics and things like that. And so you don't really get a sense of, of his personal life. You, oh, sorry. You do get a sense of his personal life in the documentary, but not specifically why he went into comedy. But the personal life yeah. is interesting because they talk about his wife, who he's been married to and, and been together with for quite some time. There's a woman named Dara. 20 years. Yeah, who seems yeah. amazing, you know, like just a, just a, a saint of a person. Lovely. And everyone who knows Gilbert echoes the fact that she had to be a saint to be. One of Gilbert's good friends says that she basically has three children, yeah. the two actual children and Gilbert. Yeah. And that wouldn't come as a surprise to too many people, I guess, if you know Gilbert. But it's still kind of beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, as I said, like I think the Gilbert Gottfried that I was introduced to when I was younger and he was younger, that manic, crazy energy, I was like, I don't know if I can withstand this for like 10 minutes, never mind a headlining act. As he's aged and his energy has come down to a place that I can, you know, like digest, I've appreciated him more, you know, or I did appreciate him more in the last sort of decade, I would say, compared to young Gilbert was just too mm -hmm. insane and too uh, abrasive. And I don't mean comedy exclusively, sometimes the comedy too, but I mean, the actual voice, yeah, of course. the timber and the of pitch was so abrasive and, and in my ear. people go to ask, well, is that his real voice? It's not. Like, it's, I mean, his voice is, that's his voice turned up to like 11. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. and his wife comes off as, like I said, a very nice person. And even like, as you said, Penn Gillette, another one of his friends uh, from Penn and Teller, comedian, magician, says Dara saved his life. And they just... I think a lot of his friends were incredulous that this woman who is like attractive, put together, very kind, you know, would be yeah, would be attractive. Him. But, and she does kind of does everything for him, you know, in terms of like organizing his life and things like that. But, and you think uh, maybe there's a bit of a dysfunctional relationship, but I don't think it is actually when you get to know them in the documentary. I think she's just a mm. very caring person, clearly cares for him, obviously cares for their two kids. So I thought maybe we just go over a couple other kind of just highlights. You know, we can each talk about a couple of things we found interesting about Gilbert. One of the things that comes up again, this is just showing the patience of his wife, is how cheap he is. At one point, he in the documentary, he's going to a couple of shows, and obviously, he's Gilbert Godfrey. He's a headliner who makes a lot of money. I'm assuming that multi-million dollar loft he lives yeah. in in New York yeah. City yeah. suggests he makes yeah. a good deal of money. But he to go to the different towns, he takes a bus, like not a private bus, like the public bus that everybody would take, but like the mega bus. You guys have seen the mega bus. It's the discount bus that you take from city to city. Yeah. If you reserve enough in advance, you could get like a trip to a five hour drive for like 
10, yeah. 20 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what he was taking. And then people on the bus are like, oh, hey, it's Gilbert Gottfried. And they talk to him. It's just crazy. And then, of course, there's his hoarding in the movie, which they talk a lot about, right, Ali? Mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. Like, he takes an elevator from the ground floor of his building directly into his massive apartment. Yeah, they have an elevator in, in their apartment. Manhattan. So that's how rich they in are. In the apartment. And so you take this elevator down and then you walk to the mega bus bus stop. I mean, it's kind of insane, but I mean, maybe that's why he has the money he does from years of saving all this but, money. Yeah, but, but, his, but I, I, his wife talks about like, and she shows you how he like, every time he goes to a hotel, he gets the free toiletry kit and the free soaps and he just keeps them. And she has these bags underneath every bed in their house with just yeah. like, all these things that it would be impossible to ever use these in your whole life. Like it's sure. Sure. It's not like, let me take this soap. It'll save me money on soap. Let me take this toilet paper. It'll save me until it's just taking it for taking its sake, because that's what you've always done. And that's what you do. It doesn't seem to have a, any rhyme or reason to it anymore. He's his ancestors. I'm sorry, not his ancestors. His children's children will never want for soap. You know what I mean? He's got everybody set up for, uh, he's going to outlive that by a long time. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. And I was also wondering the whole time if this documentary would get to um, his firing, you know, the lowest point of Gilbert's life. Sometimes you wonder if a documentary is just going to be kind of like an extended fluff piece, right? Something that just paints the best picture of somebody to counter the fact that they've had a low point in their life. But this definitely wasn't and, that. And before we get to that, I just wanted to say like, you know, people maybe don't quite appreciate how huge he was. I would say in the late 80s, you know, he was, as you said, on Arsenio Hall. He was in Beverly Hills Cop 2. He stole the show. And there's yeah. quotes from Eddie Murphy saying he is the funniest comedian I've ever seen. Is Eddie Murphy yeah. saying this in the 80s? My favorite part of the movie is Gilbert's scene. Yeah. You wait, you're going to see a lot more of yeah. Gilbert Gottfried, right? Yeah. And then, of course, he was the voice of Iago the parrot in Aladdin, which is how I would think a lot of people got to know him. And then, of course, he got more animated roles after that. And he was, as you said, we didn't see these commercials in Canada very much, but the the duck from Aflac, which is a um, yeah. insurance company. As Howard Stern said, you've been pigeonholed into uh, bird <laughs> characters, basically, which is a hilarious, which I find him quite tolerable as a bird. I don't know why. And so I guess we'll get to why Affleck, the company, parted ways from him. But then he did this. So to set the stage here, what happened is, so he's riding high, doing very well, very highly regarded comic. His comedy is very, very like out there, I guess. I don't know how to describe it, like very offensive to, to most people, but it's quite funny. Yeah. I mean, you said, you know, we we're going to pick a couple of things that we find particularly interesting about Gilbert Gottfried. And that's one of the things, like, I knew he was uh, particularly edgy, like that was his thing. But, you know, they described him as the comics comic, like comedians loved Gilbert. And I think the reason they did, when you say comics comic, what becomes very apparent is while every comedian thinks about the relationship with the audience, in the moment that they're performing, it seems that the comics comic, the Norm McDonald's, the Gilbert Gottfried's, these guys, they don't mm -hmm. care about 
the audience. They're like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and they'll come to me or they won't come to me, but I'm still going to do it. And if they don't like me, that's their problem. Or I'm going to make them mm-hmm. like me even mm-hmm. less with this next joke, right? They're almost there to ignore the audience or spite the audience, but never to have this beautiful dance and dialogue that so many of us other, you know, pedestrian comedians, I suppose, think about. And in the documentary, there's lots of people who say that. Uh, Richard Kahn, who's an actor, people probably know him from Curb Your Enthusiasm and Mad About You. He compares him to Lenny Bruce, saying he just didn't care about the audience. And Anthony Jeselnik says, clearly, he's the comedian's comedian. Like, that's why he's so much respect for him. And so this gets us to this 911. 911. 911. Do we call it's it 911? I've been fired from Nine eleven is actually what we call it these days. Totally. We're keeping that in. So this 9-11 joke. So to set the stage, they're doing a roast, one of the Comedy Central roasts for Hugh Hefner. And Gilbert's one of the roast roasters on the dais. And he makes this a 9-11 joke. Now, this is a couple Three of weeks, weeks. Yeah, after 9-11. Like, you're not even calling it 9-11. It's so fresh in the world's memory that it doesn't even have a name for it. It's just these attacks right. that just took place. And he makes a joke. The joke is essentially like, I, again, I didn't find it terribly funny, but it's like, you know, I was talking to these, and I'm paraphrasing. He's like, I'm talking to these people that they're trying to go on vacation and fly to LA. And they're like, well, I can get you a good flight, but it uh, has a stopover at the Empire State Building. Like, you know, that was the joke. That wasn't exactly the joke, but you got the gist oh, yeah, of it. Yeah, he goes, I, I wanted to fly here from California, but it took me a while because anyway, it doesn't matter. The, the point is exactly that, that he brings the Empire State Buildings into his joke and just showing that he's kind of like, I don't know if the master of too soon is the right words to choose, but, but too soon is his thing. And the documentary, what it does is it, it shows a man who... I don't know, emotionally stunted is correct, but struggles with dealing with his emotions and has found the way to deal with emotion is to make fun. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you see him, his one of his sisters says, you know, and uh, his wife says this, that when they've been in hard times, you can always depend on Gilbert to make them laugh. Is it with something inappropriate? Sure, but that's Gilbert who is also going through this emotions with his wife, with his sister, with people he loves that he is struggling to unpack and delve into. And so he turns to comedy as a way to cope. And that's what he's always done. Yeah. And I think that people forget that. And they kind of make this point at the end of the movie that when he makes these jokes about some relative dying, he's hurting too, but he's using comedy as he lived in New York city. Like, you know, it clearly is something that affects him too, but he uses it as comedy. And, but of course, as you're saying, he does, he just doubles down on the joke. So later on, I watched him recalling this whole incident with Seth Meyers. And what he wanted to say was when someone yelled out too soon, he's like, Oh, did you mean too soon between the setup and the punchline? <laughs> I said them too quickly. <laughs> was it structurally, was I? Yeah, that's um, that's very, funny. but he doubles down after the 9 11 joke and he goes into this aristocrats joke, which is an extremely filthy joke. And basically, it's a joke that comics kind of tell to each other, but it's not really one that a lot of people know about. Now, it's not for public yeah, consumption, way as one of the comedians had said there, yeah. So he doubles down and tells this extremely filthy joke afterwards, you know, because he's like, well, you didn't like that. Let's see if you like this. And that was the first time this aristocrat joke had actually been kind of publicly said, which led later on 
a couple of years later to the movie The Aristocrats, which talks about this joke and has, again, Bob Saget, Gilbert Gottfried. It was, again, directed by Penn Jillette, who we talked about earlier on. So, again, just an example of him kind of doubling down. Yeah. Gosh, when you see the real Gilbert, who is so shy, almost painfully shy, and such an introvert, the juxtaposition of that man and the person on stage, I mean, it couldn't be more different. It's really Again, I just love what this documentary did, and I do encourage people to watch it. You were going to talk about how he got fired from being the spokesperson for Affleck. I was going to talk about that, and he did get fired. And it's very interesting. You hear Dave Attell, and I don't know what you know about Dave Attell, Asif. I don't know what our listeners know about Dave Attell. One of the absolute like gurus of dirty jokes, one of like the kings of New York. Like people look up to Dave Attell. He's if you're into dirty humor, you know, he he paved the way for so many other comedians who we know probably a lot better than Dave, probably a little bit less ambitious, but still has done very, very well for himself. But even Dave Attell says, yeah, maybe he could have waited. Maybe he could have waited. So when you hear like a masterful comedian saying like maybe suggesting that maybe it was too soon, what he's referring to is these tweets that Gilbert made about the tsunami in Japan. Those are the tweets that got Gilbert fired from being the Aflac spokesperson. And, you know, it's a bombardment of tweets. It wasn't just one. You know, maybe one would have been even worse, but it's like five or six of them about like, I broke up with my girlfriend, but as the Japanese say, don't worry, another one will float by soon. And this is like hundreds of thousands of people have been either displaced or dead, missing. Like there's a lot of actual pain and confusion and again, around it was, this, uh, this thing. The whole too soon thing. It was right afterwards, which was David Tell's point. It wasn't like yeah. weeks and weeks later. It was right afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And his some of his friends, comedians, would be like, well, that's what Gilbert does. But you cannot explain that to the general public. You cannot explain that to Aflac customers. You can't even explain that to the Aflac board. But in all of this, who do I blame? Aflac. You hired mm-hmm, Gilbert Godfrey. Mm-hmm. Do some research, people. At some point, he's going to do exactly what he's... This is on brand for Gilbert Gottfried. This is just what he does. And that's why even Howard Stern is like, how are you a Disney character? Does Disney know anything about you? Listen to one Howard Stern interview. Disney should have been like, this might not be a great idea. I don't know. You know, but I don't know. I don't know. These are the choices that a lot of these companies make. And yeah, he's got a great voice to pair with a duck. He also is a human being with a personality that's been very abrasive and very edgy for decades. So I blame Aflac and all of that. And I I didn't feel that bad, to be honest, about his firing because Gilbert Gottfried operated as a person who thought this could all go mm-hmm. away at any second. That's And so when it did, he was probably somewhat prepared. And that's that. very interesting. So just as we're, as we're kind of wrapping up this section about him and his legacy. We talked about him being a fearless comic. There's one thing that I read, and they have a little clip of it in the documentary, very early in his stand-up career, where he gets up on stage and he's like, thank you, uh, thank you very much, thank you. You know, he's getting up to start his act. And then he just keeps saying, thank you, thank you very much, thank you, thank Yeah, you. with some laughter yeah. peppered in and between. he does that for apparently seven minutes. And then that was it. That was his whole set that day, which is crazy, especially when you're a young comic coming up and and, I mean, you know, so this kind of fearlessness, but 
what makes me sad about him and his life is I don't know. He, as you said, always thought this could all go away. He kept referring to his life with his wife and his two kids. His two kids are in the documentary. So cute, so adorable. And he just thought this is just a dream. Like one day I'm going to wake up. Like this isn't real. What makes me sad for him is did you ever sit back and just, you know, acknowledge and appreciate it? Or you kept doubting, how could this be real? This is too good to be real. I don't know. I just I just hope he had the chance to really look back in his life and appreciate it. I think the love and appreciation he shows for the people around him. It felt like he did take a moment. And I think there was some allusions to, or maybe not even allusions, like straight up mentions of like, sometimes I feel like I have an out-of-body experience where I'm just like, hold on, what am I doing? I'm on stage on a ship making all these people laugh. How is this my life, right? So he did have those kind of like step out of your body experiences from time to time. He was asking Howard Stern, have you ever had that? But to me, to have those experiences suggests that you really do appreciate the life you have, right? Somebody who doesn't have an out-of-body experience would be like, this is crazy, this life I built. That's the person who, in my experience, might be a little bit more entitled and like, yeah, I deserve this. I worked hard for this. This is exactly my life's plan. This is what I should be getting. This is what I'm entitled to. And you know, this is what I'm owed. The stepping out and the fact that he suggested that to Howard Stern, to me, also suggests that he was appreciative and recognized how lucky he was. So I wanted to talk, I was actually pretty excited to talk to you about this because, and I know nothing about it. The reason I'm excited to talk to you about the condition that Gilbert Gottfried had and, and eventually passed away from is because I know personally friends of mine who are comedians in Toronto. I have a friend, Tyler Morrison, who worked with Gilbert. It's great, great thrill. My good buddy, Jeff Paul, toured with him. He was in Ottawa. Your very city, mm -hmm, huh? Shout mm -hmm. out to Ottawa. Opening for him at Yuck Yucks. And it was a, a huge thrill for him. And both of them had told me that, you know, when you ask what was it like with Gilbert, the first thing they say is he's very frail and he needs help getting up on stage. And I remember being like, oh, because what the Gilbert you see on mm -hmm. stage, highly energetic. So immediately you're saddened. And I say, oh, then does he sit on stage? And then they're like, oh, no, no. Once he's on stage, you know, and Jeff told me this, he goes, it's like that when Yoda is fighting that Sith, mm -hmm. yeah. or that Sith Lord, and then like, just, you know, makes him like, basically demolishes him and all that. And then picks up his cane yeah. and slowly right. hobbles away. You know, he goes, it was like that. It was really like that. Once he's on stage, he's in his place and his arms are moving wildly and his mouth is moving wildly and his brain is still going. And he's like, and when you're you know, a younger comedian and you hold this reverence for like this incredible headliner, accomplished headliner, you can't be, you just can't, there's no way you could be like, so what are you, uh, what are you afflicted with? What are you suffering from? Right. So, and I think we learned from this documentary, he's very private. So he may not even, you know, welcome questions like that or talk about it. And indeed in this documentary, we see him slowing down over the years from the early days clip, but it's not really addressed what he was suffering from. So I was pretty interested to know what he was suffering from. And while people, many people will be like, oh, it's unexpected death of Gilbert Gottfried, because I've known people over the last seven, eight years opening for him and working for him, for me, it wasn't as unexpected because it did seem that his body was in decline, but only 
the lower part of his body, it seemed. So I was really curious to ask you about what Gilbert was going through. And so it's this thing called myotonic dystrophy. And I will tell you that I don't know what the word myotonic means. Dystrophy has come across my you know radar many times, obviously. So I think why don't we start with you telling me you know what this is sure. and what your experience has been dealing with. Sure, and just so we're clear, you know, his publicist did say after he died, he died from a ventricular tachycardia, which is an arrhythmia of the heart, which can be a complication of myotonic dystrophy. So just at the end, okay. I'll talk about the heart stuff, but let's talk about this myotonic dystrophy. So. It's a muscle disease, a genetic muscle disease. So often inherited, does not have to be inherited. And myotonia is the inability to relax a contracted muscle. So for example, the thing we talk about in clinic is you shake someone's hand and they can't let go of your hand. Right, that's a clue. That and how know. long does that last? Usually, like, do they have to literally pry their fingers? Not that open, long. Or? Usually, a few seconds. Usually, can be longer, but usually a few seconds. Enough that you can notice it as an examiner if you're examining somebody as a physician or a neurologist, but not terribly long. And it, the myotonia is present. It's often not a huge complaint of these people. Hmm. How is it different from a hand cramp? Because I get those. I get. Yeah, myotonia is not quite as, as painful. And it's just this inability to kind of relax afterwards. Because in mm. other words, you can contract okay. But when you have a cramp right in your hand or your thigh or your calf or something like that, you know, it's kind of cramped mm. up. You can't do anything with it really. Right. And myotonia kind of can be caused by a bunch of different things, but this genetic myotonic dystrophy is a common cause. So myotonia is an interesting thing. So we can kind of elicit it by talking to somebody, getting a history, or by examining them, like I said, about having them grip something. But we can also do what's called an EMG. And an EMG is a kind of an electrical study of your muscles. So you take a needle and you actually put it into the muscle. It's like an acupuncture kind of diameter needle. And then you look at waveforms that are generated on that. So the, our muscles have electrical impulses and they can generate waveforms on a screen due to the electricity. And that can tell us what kind of muscle disease you have. The other thing that we do is you can take those electrical impulses and transmit them into sound. And so an EMG, or as we call them, a neuromuscular neurologist can actually look at the waveforms and listen to the waveforms to help diagnose somebody. So what I'm going to do now, Ali, is I'm going to play for you the sound of myotonia on an EMG. And I'm going to have you and our audience listen to it, and then you're going to tell me what you think about that, uh, what it sounds like. So what do you think about that, Ali? What does that sound like to you? Well, I don't want to be insensitive, but I feel like if it hasn't already been used as a sample in some like rock music, yeah. or, you know, I think it will be like musicians in our world might be like, oh, I like that. That's an interesting sound. Let me see if I can get that like, you know, right after some guitar riff or something well, like that. It, I don't know. It sounds. Yeah. It, it, you know what they say? It sounds like a dive bomber, like those World War II dive bombers. Yeah. Right. But it's just crazy that that rhythm can be generated by your muscles, right? It's just- That's so, insane. So yeah, that, that, let me start with that. I should open with that, that that's, I can't believe the human body is making that noise, but also it sounds like the beginning of some Metallica sound with some historical World War, uh, you know, uh, lyrics. Yeah. So, that's so my colleagues who do these EMGs, again, they put that in, they hear that, they're like, this is my tone. It wouldn't sound like, and nothing else would sound like that. 
So that's kind of how we diagnose it. So like I said, we have these two different types of myotonic dystrophy. And if you look at both of them combined, so there's a type one and a type two, Gilbert Gottfried had the type two. But if you look how frequent they are, they estimate the prevalence is about one in 8,000, which is pretty common. Pretty you know, it's, it's not, not yeah, that on something we don't about, about a lot. And is it like a diabetes type one, type two? One is childhood and one is adult? Sort of, sort of. Because you said your colleagues do this, so that means children are yes, afflicted. Yes, yeah. So I'll get into that. Type 1 occurs in adults and kids. Type 2, very unusual to occur in kids. So I've never seen a patient with type 2, personally. I've, I've seen lots but of that patients that is what Gilbert Yes, had. correct. Interesting, by the way, in terms of the incidence, there's certain areas of the world that have higher incidence because, of course, it's genetic. So northern Sweden, Quebec in Canada and the Basque region of Spain all, all have very high prevalences of this. So let's go through the two types. The type one, like I said, is the one I see more often. And it consists of mainly three things that people have, muscle weakness, myotonia, and cataract. So we talked about myotonia, the muscle weakness, you know, you can imagine that's a, a main symptom because it's we call it myotonic dystrophy. So the other dystrophy you guys know about is muscular dystrophy, which consists of muscle weakness as well. So it's a different type of dystrophy, but the myotonic form. And cataracts. So a lot of people will have cataracts. So basically, from my understanding, if you have cataracts below, like, say, age 50 or so, very suspicious for myotonic dystrophy. So sometimes you have a problem with your eyes, you go to the eye doctor, you don't have any other symptoms. They're like, you have cataracts, you know, this could be myotonic dystrophy. And then they would refer you to a geneticist or a neurologist for that. In the documentary, we see Gilbert putting eye drops in his mother's eyes. We see her at some eye appointment also. Did we? Did they yeah, ever make no, a link? No, that's that something not come very from? clear to me. So that's a really good point. I don't know if it runs in his family or not when he was diagnosed. He's never talked about this. It's only his publicist saying right. this. So I, it's a really good point. I know, and of course, his mother had health issues towards the end of her life and passed away. I don't know if she had these problems. So... The type one people we know can sometimes get a lot of problems as they get older. So progressive muscle weakness and then problems swallowing, problems speaking, and then problems breathing. And so sometimes they can die as they get older from it, especially if you have a adult onset, you can get muscle wasting. And so your eyes can kind of fall down a little bit. We call that ptosis, which can contribute to this kind of appearance that the people can have in their face. You can also get heart rhythm problems, which we call tachyarrhythmias. Those are more common in type 1 than type 2, but it's weird because Gilbert Gottfried had type 2. You can also get, with type 1, some neuropsychiatric features. So reducing, like actually minimalizing your disease is actually one of the symptoms, like not really appreciating how severe you are and mild cognitive impairment or apathy. So then you think, oh, wait, maybe Gilbert had that, but he didn't because he had type two, which doesn't have those features. So it's all very strange. You can also get GI symptoms. So you can get diarrhea, incontinence. You can have a gallbladder problems, a susceptibility to diabetes. You mentioned diabetes. You actually get diabetes more often in type one and infertility in males. And you could actually get early frontal balding, which again, you think, oh, okay, that's what Gilbert had. He had some frontal balding, but again, it's not, that's not the type he had. The type that he is. 
The other thing with type one, which is very important is um, you can have a congenital form. So you're born with it. And that's usually only passed down through mothers, not fathers for various reasons, but that's the type of babies we see. So we see a baby who's born and is not breathing very well and not moving their muscles very well. So one of the considerations we have is the congenital form of myotonic dystrophy. So the publicist said it was type mm-hmm. two, you know that. So what age would Gilbert have found out? Uh, you know, we don't know, but I'm just asking what, like, is this something in your thirties, forties, fifties that you could Yeah, find? it's more often in adulthood. So in your forties could be a time where you could be diagnosed with it. And because that's when, if you have it, the disability and the symptoms will start to really increase more. And sometimes you can have some very mild weakness, much more milder than type one. But these patients have some tremors, which which may bring them to medical attention. But pain is a main symptom for these patients with type 2. Very different than type 1 who do not have a lot of pain. And the pain is almost, it's actually similar to a fibromyalgia type pain. So it's very hard to differentiate from that. And these patients can have minimal myotonia. So they may not have myotonia. They may not have cataracts. So it can actually be very difficult to diagnose. So then you think about it. Well, how was he diagnosed with this? Who came up with this diagnosis? Did it run in his family or not? But it's very hard to know. The other crazy thing about myotonic dystrophy is Type two is type one, you have a reduced life expectancy, but type two, the life expectancy is almost normal. And they say the abnormalities in social and cognitive skills, which you think, oh yeah, that's what Gilbert must have had, very mild or absent in type two. Which is why he was able to perform, once you put him on stage or help him up there, he was able to perform with no no yeah. issues. So it's strange. And it says it's very rare that people would have these heart rhythm problems. Not impossible. Some people can have a a severe variant of type 2, which can give you the heart rhythm problem, but it's not very common. So again, he's very atypical for the type 2 because he ended up passing away from the heart rhythm problem. How long, based on what you know, would he have been suffering badly for? Like, can that heart rhythm thing just happen overnight? Or would he have been sort of bedridden for a while leading up to his death? Very unclear. Why don't we just take a side for a second and talk about that? So he had this ventricular tachycardia, which is a heart rhythm that's faster than 100 or 120 beats per minute. Okay. So an abnormally fast rhythm being generated from the lower parts of your heart. I'll just keep it brief by saying that. So there's different kinds of ventricular tachycardia. You can have that and as part of kind of a cardiac arrest where, you know, your heart stops working properly. You have this high rhythm and you would fall to the ground, be unconscious, right? And that you could just die from that. Those are people who are perfectly well and then fall to the ground and die. They may have an inherited risk for having this kind of ventricular tachycardia, or you could have a heart attack, which causes the ventricular tachycardia and you die from that. So you could just drop dead and die. Is that what happened with him? Or some people can have this ventricular tachycardia and they get repeated attacks of this and they may not, you know, pass out or have a cardiac arrest with them, but they have these recurrent episodes of it. And if that's the case, then you would treat them with what's called an antiarrhythmic medication, or you could have an ablation where you insert a catheter and ablate certain parts of your heart to prevent this abnormal rhythm. Or you could, some of those people have an implantable defibrillator where you probably heard about people like that, where they get a defibrillator implanted. So then if they have this uh, ventricular tachycardia, then they'll get a shock. And uh, just as another aside, you know, on TV, you see a lot of people with asystole, right? On a show, like they flatline 
and then they'd give them the shocks, right, with the paddles. But you can't in real life shock someone out of a flat line. That doesn't work ever. That's not how you. Oh no way! Down. I've been lied to my exactly. Entire life. So ventricular tachycardia is a shockable rhythm. So you would shock somebody if they're unconscious here. And when you apply like the paddles to them, especially ones that are available at like a recreation center or pool or something like that, they read it themselves. They decide whether someone has this ventricular tachycardia or another one called ventricular fibrillation, and they'll apply the shocks. It's all automatic. So anyway, so that's all to say- We're deep in the asides Yeah, that's here. all We're to deep say. In yeah. the so let's go back and just say- for him, I don't know. Was this the first time he had it? Did he have a defibrillator in his body? I, we really just have no idea. You said that it can be genetic. Are there other causes of no, it? No, it is genetic, but I, I was saying sometimes it, it's inherited in families and sometimes it's not. So it definitely is a genetic cause. In fact, a lot of the research about type 1 myotonic dystrophy, the genetic cause was uncovered at my hospital, at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario or, or CHEO in, in Ottawa by some of my colleagues. So these- You were busy watching movies. I, it was discovered in yeah. 1992. So I was graduating high school I, at the time, but I there my colleagues now. <laughs> good alibi, yeah. good alibi. So type one is what we call a trinucleotide repeat disease. So, you know, our DNA consists of um, four different kinds of DNA kind of coding, CTAG, right? And so if you have a repeat of CTG that keeps repeating, for whatever some reason, if you have a whole bunch of these patterns that repeat all the time, that can cause genetic problems. And there's many genetic problems that are due to these repeats. So when you have three things, it's called a trinucleotide repeat. And so it's weird that that even occurs, but that is just the way genetics works. And so, you know, a lot of us will have a couple of repeats doesn't cause any problems. But the more repeats you have, you can think about the more unstable your DNA is, which is really quite true, but that's one way to think about it. And so the severity of the disease is influenced by the number of repeats that you have. So if you're getting into like thousands of repeats, you're going to have more likelihood of developing myotonic dystrophy. And it also shows what's called anticipation, especially. So if a mother has it, they could have a mild form, but if they have a child who has it, for whatever reason, they're going to have more repeats. The repeats will expand in the baby. And that's why a baby could present at birth, but the mother only had it in their 40s, uh, having symptoms of the myotonic dystrophy. Type 2 myotonic dystrophy has a CCTG repeat. So a four nucleotide repeat. And what these repeats do, again, we don't really know, but it's quite complicated, but they are likely toxic to RNA. So we've, again, I wouldn't have talked about RNA if we did this podcast pre-COVID, but everybody seems to know about RNA. So basically DNA. mRNA. <laughs> there you go. So DNA codes for RNA and RNA codes for proteins and proteins are what make up our body and everything that we do. And so likely these repeats are toxic to RNA through complicated mechanisms. And so that makes you deficient in creating proteins and the proteins are occurring all over the body. That's why, especially for the type one, you don't just get muscle disease and myotonia. You also get cataracts. Well, there's no muscles there. So why are you getting cataracts? Why are you getting GI symptoms? Why are you getting all the, the cardiac conduction defects? It's because it's toxic to RNA and RNA is, exists in every cell Anywhere. in our body. So that's kind of the short story about the genetics for myotonic dystrophy. 
I liked it. I understood about 75%, which is a higher rate than normal, as you would know. Is there a treatment if it's found early enough? Uh, is it one of those things? It's mainly monitoring and what we call symptomatic treatment. So, for example, if you see someone with myotonic dystrophy, you want to always refer them to obviously have their muscle function monitored and physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and things like that. You definitely need them evaluated by a cardiologist because you don't want them to develop an arrhythmia and you need to be monitoring for that very regularly. And you can use medicines for myotonia, I guess. They don't work particularly well, but you can try them if it's bothersome. But as I mentioned, the myotonia is not usually that bothersome. It's usually more than muscle weakness. And there's not a lot of treatments for that other than, again, the supportive care. So you want to monitor their breathing. Some people may need like CPAP or BiPAP to help them breathe. And there are many experimental treatments, a lot of trials going on across the world, including in our hospital, looking for experimental treatments for myotonic dystrophy, but those are still, you know, in the pipeline, I would say. So that's our show for today. Hopefully people found this interesting. Really encourage people to watch the documentary Gilbert by Neil Berkeley. It came out in 2017. You can rent it on like iTunes, Apple TV. I went on Apple Plus and rented it. Yeah, can't, really recommendable. And as I say, I think, you know, Asif, you and I both suggested that we weren't huge fans there are huge fans. You see them in the documentary. People are just blown away that it's Gilbert. I don't think we can be described as huge fans, but I think we both are fans of this documentary and, and you know the life it showed. Yeah, definitely. 10 on 10, do recommend. Yes. And hopefully you guys learned a bit about myotonic dystrophy. Again, something that we see in pediatrics, especially the type 1, type 2, more in adults and a bit harder to diagnose. And that's what Gilbert had. Reach out to us. Let us know what you thought about this episode, drvcomedian at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on social media as well, Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're everywhere. Make sure to rate and review the podcast and uh, make sure to tell us, uh, your friends about it. We've had some very exciting uh, podcast topics over the past few weeks that people have been really interested in. So tell people about it. Yeah. Uh, you've enjoyed our guests. We were happy to hear from you telling us how you enjoyed the, the guests we've had on. We have more guests coming up. You also really enjoyed the Will Smith, Chris Rock episode. Asif was considering maybe we just, we become a slap focused podcast, but I talked him out of that. I said, no, let's, let's cover something broader. But anyway, we appreciate you listening always. Thank you so much. As Dave Chappelle said in his uh, sketch show, what the five fingers Please say. Please remember that although I'm a doctor. No, what the five fingers say <laughs> in the face. Slap. But please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.